You're listening to episode 14 of season 13 of the GNU World Order for the 91st day of 2019. Hi everyone, this is Klaatu. Today we're going to talk about coffee, and we're going to talk about Flatpak, and a little bit about Snap, and a little bit about App Image. Now in the previous episode, we took a lot of listener feedback, and this is a little bit of a continuation of that, technically speaking. But uh, the, the first thing I want to focus on, as I just said, is the coffee side of things. So I'm going to start, uh, I think I'll start at the top this time, because uh, this one is from Daniel, and he he was the guy in the previous episode who was talking about Grav and Pico and flat file CMSs, and I had to truncate his email because then he, he, he switched gears and went into coffee talk. So I'll, I'll finish that email up just so that I can mark it done. Okay, so he says, Daniel says, about coffee. I cook it in a small pot, make water boil, take it away from the heat, add coffee, put it back until it starts to rise, then cover the pot and let the coffee settle for a few minutes. I'm not very hi-fi, but I like to use a good, tasty coffee that is not too dark, but not too light either. Lightly roasted coffee is the blight of Finland. And I like to add a mix of soy, oat milk, instead of cow. The earthy taste of the pot-made coffee goes better with that. I can identify with this, actually. Um, I, I also like it, oat milk, if I can get it, is I think it's quite good. Um, I'm also kind of a fan of rice milk. Those are the two sort of non-dairy milks that I am most fond of, probably. I thought I'd really like almond milk, but it, it turns out to be a little bit grainy and not very flavorful. So I, I kind of, I mean, I don't avoid it, but I, I don't seek it out either. So yeah, um, sometimes the non-dairy milks in coffee... It, it adds, yeah, quite a nice a nice angle to to the flavor of the coffee. But it's really neat to hear this, um, making coffee in a small pot. I kind of wonder what kind of coffee Daniel... I should have probably posed this question in the previous episode. I wonder what kind of coffee it is. Like, is it one of the thinly ground coffees, or is it more of a, um, a coarse grind? And then when he pours it into his cup, does he try to avoid getting the... Gr- the the coffee grounds into the cup probably I don't know I want to know more actually but th- that's very cool that's that's um that's great to hear about well it's great to hear about people making coffee not not because I care whether people make coffee or not it's just I just think it's interesting so this is Vulcan writer he says uh, I may have mentioned this to you so this is the guy who was emailing about ZFS and then about licensing and stuff like that this time he's emailing about coffee. I've maybe mentioned this to you online, but I use a French press and have a bean grinder. Here are the ones I have. So to um, to people who are not American, a French press is what what everyone else sort of calls, or at least in New Zealand we call a plunger. Other people call a press. Other people call there's another name that I'm I'm just blanking on, but it's one of those uh, a, a coffee pot that you just you pour the water in the ground the coffee into and then you press this little wire mesh down over it to keep the coffee ground s- stuff on the bottom of the of the pot while you pour out the liquid so that's that's what Americans call it a French press for some reason I'm not really sure why we call it a French press uh, I don't know if that's like literally just a marketing thing like someone whoever was first to market decided let's call this a French press because I, I swear at one point, a long time ago, I, I'm almost sure I heard it called an, an Australian press. But then sort of French press took over, or I'm imagining it. Um, or, or it really is very popular in France, I don't know. 
So he, he has links to this very specific things that he has. And, and the, I, I had, I, I saw one of these before and I forgot about it until this email. It is this handheld coffee grinder that, that's, it's quite, uh, I, I actually don't know because it's just a picture, but I saw one and it, it might not have been like the same. This might be different, but I've, I saw one at my, um, at a friend's house and it was about the size of, um, well, a torch or rather a flashlight for Americans or, uh, maybe one of those hand grinders, you know, where you grind like salt and stuff. Although those come in a lot of different sizes. So do flashlights, don't they? But you know, the, it, it was, it was handheld grinder and it was great because you could, you could fresh grind beans just expecting to make one cup of coffee. And that was, and it didn't take up much room. That's the key right now for me at least. So I'm really glad that he reminded me that those things existed. Anyway, he continues and says, One of the things I find with drip coffee is that the paper filter absorbs the oils from the coffee, which gives drip coffee a two-dimensional flavor. That's a great way of putting it. Um, I, I I just think of it as tasting paper, but maybe what I'm also or or alternatively tasting is, yeah, the lack of, of the actual part of the coffee that you want to, to, to taste. An advantage of grinding your own beans, Vulcan Rider continues, is that you can throw stuff in with the beans. Two of my favorites are break up a stick of cinnamon and pepper, like black pepper. Pepper gives it a unique depth of flavor. I have put pepper in a pot of coffee and people don't notice it per se, but they notice something. Strange as that may sound, this is class two again, I've actually done that before. There was a, there was this holiday only coffee variety at Trader Joe's once. Trader Joe's is like a little grocery, well, not so little now, but it, yeah, so sort of, it's supposed to be the cool, hip, alternative grocery store in America. And so you go there and you can get things that you can't get elsewhere. And they are, they're all packaged in such a way that make you think that, you know, all of the, they, they, they try to, I think, I think their thing is that they try to pretend like they're like a, an actual co-op or something like that. You know, they, they have that vibe. And so you go in feeling really good about it. I don't know what their business is actually like, but I'm just saying that's that's the that's what they say they're like. I don't know that that's I I, I have my doubts, but maybe not. Maybe I'm being um, cynical. So anyway, Trader Joe's, there was this winter coffee there, holiday winter coffee, and it had cinnamon and I think black and red pepper in it, and and it was really probably something else too. But I mean, it was yeah, it was really unique. In flavor, it might not even have had cinnamon actually, but it was it was some you know some savory spices put into the the coffee, and it was really really good. And you kind of got this sort of a flavored coffee, but without sort of like adding like sugary syrup that doesn't really taste all that good in retrospect to your coffee, you know. So yeah, it was really interesting. And I can't find it here in New Zealand, of course. And and so around the holidays, I'll I'll sometimes make a cup of of coffee with a little bit of cinnamon, a little bit of nutmeg, and a little bit of, yeah, just a, just a touch of black pepper. Not much. Now, here's what happened this previous year or the year before, I think. I put way too much pepper in a cup of coffee once, and it was so horrible. And it was like at four in the morning, and I was drinking. That's when I get up in the morning. I was drinking my first cup of coffee, and it just tasted like like pepper and it was just the worst experience and i really kind of shied away from it ever since then because i just i really it was a horrible 
horrible experience. And of course, I was for I forced myself to drink most of it until I finally realized that I was being stupid and poured it out. So do be careful if you try to add pepper to your coffee. You don't want to overdo that. All right. So here's a um, here's here's a email from David. And he says, the coffee talk was very interesting. I always assumed that using a paper filter was the most common way to make coffee. Uh, so did I, David, actually, for, for a very long time. Uh, until, I mean, New Zealand kind of enlightened me that, that actually that's not, I don't think that's common outside of America, possibly, or maybe just sort of outside of America and Canada. I'm not sure, but yeah, it's not, it, it isn't like the default. He says, in the U.S., the... And I'm not going to say the name of this brand because I don't approve of the brand, and so I'm just going to pretend like I'm not. I, I'm not even going to read the word. So in the U.S., the is really catching on for personal use. The basis of the is a single-serving plastic container that has coffee and a filter built in. You place the single-serving plastic container into a special machine that has a water. We, we all know what he's talking about, right? It's it's the it's the it's those coffee machines that you see around now, and you have to buy the, these special coffee pods, which are generally yeah made of plastic, as he says, and then you pop it into the machine, and the machine pours some hot water over it, or through it, rather, pokes a hole in it and pours hot water through it, and you walk away with a single serving of coffee, and you, of course, take the plastic pot out and throw that away. Now, I don't have to tell you, dear listener, that if I were to ever subject myself to that kind of uh, coffee, I, I would I would fill up a landfill. I mean, it would be, it would take no time at all. I have a lot of coffee throughout the day, as probably you do too. So that just doesn't work. And that's only one complaint. That's just the sort of uh, the, the ecological complaint, right? The other complaint is that they actually make really poor cups of coffee. Now, strangely, I did get one of these machines once, not for myself, I got given it by someone when I was, by a couple of people, when I was leaving a, uh, a job. I was leaving the company to go to somewhere else. And I'm not big on social graces, but even I felt ob obligated to take their their gift. Unfortunately, they didn't give me the receipt, so I couldn't get rid of it. So I had this thing. Luckily, they knew me well enough to provide this special uh, reusable coffee pod. So it was like this plastic sort of filter. Well, it was a filter, yeah. And you could put it in place of the pod and put your own coffee into it and, and keep reusing it. So that was that was at least at least I wasn't, you know, I mean, I wouldn't have bought the coffee pods. That's just not me. I wouldn't have done it. But, um, I mean, I, w I would have just used it for hot water, which is in fact what I eventually did. So I tried, I tried using it for a while and then I realized that by using this coffee machine that that just didn't make good coffee. In my mind, I was kind of, you know, saving money because I was I was making my own coffee at, at the office and I wasn't going downstairs to the cafe and getting an expensive cup of coffee and so on. But in reality, what happens when you have when you have bad coffee on hand and better coffee within walking distance is that you find yourself walking to get coffee a lot more. You know what I mean? Like, and you just at some point your your brain starts to rebel against you, and it just it it makes it so that you forget to make your own coffee. It makes it so that you happen to be out at a certain time, so you can grab a quick cup of coffee as you walk. That sort of thing. So it was it was an exercise in in trying to 
trying to settle for bad coffee, and, and I just wasn't really going to let myself do that deep, deep down. So the coffee machine turned into a hot water maker, uh, which was nice, because my friend The Last Known God had gotten me uh, a bunch of really nice teas, and uh, so I was able to drink, like, lots of tea, because I had hot water that, you know, it was just, it was an electric kettle, is what it was. It turned into an electric kettle. Um, and the only thing that I really regret is that, well, number one, that I couldn't get rid of the thing because I didn't have the receipt. And then number two, I guess I could have tried to sell it or something. That's probably what I should have done. Um, although that's, you know, that's putting it back out there, right? I don't want that either. The only, yeah, so the thing that I really regret is that it was on my shelf in my office for the longest time, so people probably thought that I actually approved of that machine. And it was like an advertisement. You know, I mean, running Linux all day, right? People people see that all the time. They don't take notice of that. They see that stupid coffee machine, and they're like, I'm going to go get one for myself, because you, you condone it. You, you are, you have one, so it must be okay. It's just unbelievable. All right, anyway, uh, David continues. He says, We are also seeing a resurgence of specialty brew coffee from local roasters. The local roasters have a tradition, have traditional paper-based filter machines as well as specialized single-serve options like pour-overs from a company called Chemex, C-H-E-M-E-X. At my home, I have a product called the uh, an AeroPress. It is similar to a French press in that you put grounds and water into a container, but there's a filter at the bottom, and you use a plunger to force air into the container and press the liquid through the filter directly into a cup. That's interesting. I've, I don't know that I've seen that. The pour-overs and that sort of thing I have had, like, just out, you know, at, at random places that happen to do it. And I, I will admit that that it does seem to make good coffee, but I don't honestly know if that's because they're being silly and fancy and pouring water over a weird beaker container, or whether it's just because it's really good coffee, and it would it would be good coffee whether they made it in a press or a pour-over or whatever. Uh, if you want pictures, let me know. At my work, we wave, we, we wave both traditional drip, I don't know what that means, uh, traditional drip and a specialized machine that grounds the bean and combines it with hot water for a single serve through a filter, of course. Yeah, at, at my old job at the movie studio here in New Zealand, we had espresso machines in every kitchen, and, and it was a four-person espresso machine, so you could, like, four people could line up and make themselves espressos. It was amazing. It was, the, and, and it was all fresh ground. You had the, you had the grind, the coffee grinder right there, and you would put your little espresso, you know, container, uh, the, the coffee part, under there and you would grind just enough that you needed and you'd press it down with a press and you'd put it into the machine and you would make your own espresso or cappuccino or americano or whatever you wanted to make it was pretty great okay and then finally he says and he's sneaking in some tech stuff into his coffee email uh he says when you mentioned arj two thoughts came to my head winamp and commander keen and for the record dear listener I have no idea what those are. Winamp, I'm assuming, is a music player, but Commander Keen, I have no idea what that means. That means that the early distribution of music files and shareware leveraged ARJ archives in the past. When I was in college, we used to frequent newsgroups looking for MP3 songs. We would find special download channels through private messages to download one song at a time. Shareware was typically distributed through BBSs, though. I'm not sure if that's where I used ARJ. There was also a large wares scene at the time that would drive you various... It would drive you to various CD sites to get secret codes. It might ask you to go to some random adult website and look for the three, the, the the third word of the fifth paragraph. My guess is that it was a way to drive ad revenue. I used 
I used to leverage a text browser like Lynx to go to the sites rather than using Netscape Navigator because the pictures were not work safe and the only place I had a decent connection, a T1, was at my job at the university. I also used you. So actually, let me stop there. That paragraph is such a '90s paragraph, isn't it? I mean, it's it's got all of the all the '90s things in it. It's got the wares. It's got the MP3 downloads. It's got the apparently ARJ. It's it's brilliant. And and, and using the internet at your work because you don't have a decent connection anywhere else. Um, it is that's yeah that's a that's a great snapshot. That's really I, I know that anyone who was doing computing for 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 reals back in the 90, 90s can can totally identify with that that paragraph. Okay, so then he says, I also use UDisk CTL. Version 2 is used to separate mounts by user rather than a standard place like slash media. Yeah, and that is quite nice. Uh, if you use the mount functionality in Dolphin, it uses UDisk's version 2. That's very cool. I did not know that. Uh, I use Dolphin all the time, and I didn't... I, I never knew that that was what it was using in the back... On the on the back end, okay. And then I think well, so I already um I already read Brian in Ohio's coffee email that that was the coffee poem that his son did, but he he also added that he just got his first programmable he had just gotten his first programmable coffee maker when his son wrote that um that poem that I read on the last episode, and I he must have hammed it up enough to inspire the words on the attached uh, picture, which was of course the the coffee poem. So there you go. That's um, that's all the coffee emails, I think. Yeah, if you've got a coffee story or or thoughts about coffee, I'm glad to to hear more. That was that was a great collection, but there's always room for more coffee on GNU World Order. Hey, speaking of that. go. You've got coffee now. You spent 20 minutes hearing about coffee, and now you have coffee. Or at least I do. Hopefully you do as well. Now I want to talk about Flatpak. Mostly Flatpak. I kind of want to briefly mention the other things that are out there, but I've, I've talked about AppImage before. I did a, a sort of a tutorial on AppImage either on this show or, or Hacker Public Radio, I don't remember. Or maybe I just talked about it at a conference. Not sure. Really, and it doesn't matter, because AppImage in its current state, it, so it, it used to be that AppImage was this essentially a wrapper around a .iso file, just the, the same kind of .iso file that you download when you're getting a Linux distribution. When you clicked on an AppImage or double-clicked or what, however you've got your desktop set up, as long as it's executable, it would mount itself onto the system as if though it was a thumb drive or something that you just plugged in, and then auto-launch the application inside of, of that .iso file. Now you had given permission to it to do that, so it's no surprise. That was by, that's the design. I guess that was a little bit of a hack, though. It's not, it's certainly not the intent of a .iso file. And to get it to do that, I guess, probably took a little bit of, well, a little bit of hacking, really. So what they've done for their second edition of AppImage, version, I, I, I'm th I think of it as version 2.0, I don't know that they actually call it that. But whatever they're calling it now is that they're using SquashFS. 
which is a compressed read-only file system that you may have used before. You may not even know you've used before, but if you've ever used one of those live distros that, that, that has modules like Slacks or Porteous, then a lot of those, uh, sometimes those are in SquashFS because they'll, they'll, they'll be compressed and they'll be read-only, and so when they load the module, it'll, it'll overlay a, a file system on top of the base image, thereby providing you with new functionality. And that's kind of what App Image does now, is it puts everything into a SquashFS image, and then when you launch it, 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 it expands that SquashFS images, it, it, image and, and runs it. And, and in theory, I think it, it's a much cleaner, kind of sensible way to go about implementing that technology. The, the problem is that I can't seem to build a working App Image anymore. It's just, I'm, I'm, I've got a bug open about it, I'm just not able to do it. I know it's possible, I've, I've witnessed it. It's it, app images out there exist that work. I'm just whatever whatever it is about SquashFS and how it's mounting or or how the paths get set, something about it I'm not I haven't quite figured out. And so hopefully hopefully I will eventually figure that out because I like app image. I think it's a really it's a really great little project. But in the meantime, I've been looking at Flatpak and I kind of started looking more seriously at Flatpak because of this email from Alexi, which is way too long to read, although, to be honest, I could probably literally make an entire episode out of it, because he really, really breaks down a lot of the different features of of flat packs. And I think, in a way, it's just an, a matter of, of really reading reading the documentation really, really thoroughly. And it turns out, for instance, that one of the things that I, one of the killer features for me about AppImage is, is that you could easily sneaker net an AppImage from one computer to another. And that's important to me because I, I know that a lot of people don't believe that anyone in the modern world would ever possibly be without a network connection. But I theorize that such an event could occur. Uh, in fact, I myself have experienced this. Either a network doesn't give you access to it so that you can act like a normal computer user, uh, or the network just 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 flat out doesn't exist. It goes down, or it, it's just not there. So it, it does happen, and and even if it doesn't happen, I just always have felt like that should be a thing that that Linux users can do. Is it's hey, I've got GIMP on my computer, you don't have it on yours. Here, let me hand that to you because we're sitting right next to each other. So I'll throw it onto a thumb drive. I'll give it to you, and it will run. That's that's a basic, basic thing, and 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 to say that that's too much to ask is just silly to me. Turns out it's silly to the flat pack people as well, apparently, because there's a flag. Alexi has told me, and again, I think um, I think he he did this through the wonders of reading documentation, which which I'll admit I wish I'd done that. Um, I mean, I I've read the documentation. I just I I guess I I skipped over over this particular thing because it is kind of buried in here but it's um it is flatpak dash create dash usb it copy app it it copies apps and or runtimes onto removable media so that's quite quite exciting to me because that's exactly what i want to do and and it turns out that the way that works is that it it copies it creates a little flatpak repository on a thumb drive copies the stuff over and then when you tell Flatpak to install, it uses that as the source if it cannot find a better source. 
that's hugely exciting to me, and it was kind of a it was it was kind of permission to really investigate Flatpak in earnest. Now the other thing that I have that that has swayed me towards Flatpak is the experience that I've had on Red Hat Enterprise Linux on my work computer. So I used to run Fedora on my work computer because I just felt like Fedora has all the applications and RHEL kind of famously doesn't. And and the reason I say kind of famously is because Rel Red Hat Enterprise Linux Rel is is sort of an odd bird out there in the computer world right now in that it actually has support and I didn't realize how odd that was until I was talking to someone and I was telling them that that Rel doesn't package a, a billion applications be, because they have support and and the person just didn't quite understand what I was saying and so I I realized that the reason the person doesn't understand is because support doesn't mean anything anymore in the computer world. Back in the 80s and 90s, I guess, you could call up computer companies and 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 say, hey, I'm trying to install this, um, I don't know, this modem, and it won't work. What do I need to do? And they would tell you, oh, you just, you know what, you need to open up your computer, install the thing, you gotta go get, get the drivers, um, get the drivers from this location, install them. They would actually walk you through that sort of thing, I guess. This this is what I've heard. I've never experienced it, but that's what I, that's my understanding, is that that's where the idea of computer support actually came from. Now, in the modern world, th- that doesn't happen. You can't you can't call Microsoft or or uh, Apple or Google and and ask them for support, desktop support. You know, hey, guide me through this process. You can't even call like Nvidia, which is just a graphics card, right? I mean, if you have a problem with that, you're not going to call them and get and get help on on installing your hardware and 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 how to configure the software. It's just not going to happen. So, with Red Hat Enterprise Linux because you're purchasing a support contract, that actually does happen. It can happen. I mean, you can support you can buy really cheap support contracts where you just have online support. But you can get Levels of support where you call Red Hat and ask them questions about things, and they will help you. A, a real live person who knows Linux will help you through the problem. And if that's the expectation that they're setting up, then they have to limit the scope of what they offer, such that the calls that they receive aren't going to be about, for instance, Q Tractor and Kdin Live and random things that they quite likely do not specialize in. And so their their package selection is narrower. Now there are ways around that. You can, I mean, it's Linux, right? There's always a way around it. So if if you pay for a Red Hat support contract, you download uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux, you install it on your computer. You can install, for instance, extra package. Um, I think it's extra packages for Enterprise Linux, E P E L. You can install that. There's some other stuff in there. You could you could get, grab. Um, source RPMs from Fedora's repositories and then rebuild them on your Red Hat system and install them from there. Now that's a little bit, that that gets a little bit messy because then, of course, if you're installing, I don't know, let's just say FFmpeg, then then certainly FFmpeg has at least, I don't even know, let's say 20 dependencies. And it actually may not be that many, actually. But, you know, it's got like 10 dependencies, let's say. And so then you'd have to back up and get all of those RPMs, those source RPMs, and rebuild them for your Red Hat Enterprise Linux system and install those, and so on. So it gets it it, it can get complicated if you think, yeah, I'll just roll up my sleeves and and make my own RPMs, because that 
it, yeah, you, then you have to deal with, with a lot of RPMs and a lot of rebuilding. Now, you could script it, I guess, maybe, and and I did think of doing that at one point. But this time around, I, I, I got a new laptop at work, and so I decided to just stick with Red Hat Enterprise Linux and try it out. So I'm running, believe it or not, GNOME, the GNOME desktop, and and Red Hat Enterprise Linux on my work machine. And I have to say that I was really, really, really taken aback by the smooth integration of Flatpak. I had not realized that Flatpak had come so far so quickly. When you launch the software repository or the software installer application, which, you know, I, I generally never use, but I thought I, it's one of those things that I, I tend to check out whenever I'm trying a new distribution or a distribution that I've been away from for a very long time. So I, I launched it and looked at it, and, and, and I was seeing entries there saying that it was provided by Flatpak, or Flathub, rather. And I thought, well, that's really crazy that they're just offering Flatpaks right here in their software installer. So to the everyday user, it doesn't look any different from just any old DNF install script. Flathub's just right there. So you have things on RHEL like GIMP and Inkscape, and I mean, I think that's probably already there, but but you've got like GIMP 2.10 instead of 2.8, and I'm pretty sure that's that's not normal. You've got Kadian Live, that's definitely not normal. There there are all kinds of things that I've just never seen on a RHEL desktop before. I mean, not without a lot of work. And maybe even more exciting, it, it means that the versions of any given application that I, that I really really care about. The version that I'm running on my RHEL desktop is the same version to the to the very minor version to the edition that I'm running on my Slackware systems. And that's unheard of. That's just not normal. I mean, generally speaking, what happens is that I'm running one version of an application on Fedora, another version on Slackware, and then some other version on either the CentOS or the Debian or, you know, whatever other distribution gets involved because it was the thing that we purchased a support contract for or it was the only thing that would install on this computer or whatever. So so for it to be the same across the board is is absolutely astonishing and really really exciting to me. This this is a big deal. So I want to step through rather than just rave about this constantly. I could go on for another 20 minutes about it, but I won't. What I want to do instead is build a flat pack. This isn't going to be fancy because it's uh, it's just a, a quick tutorial that's on Flatpak. So if you if you do this, you know, if you want to do this yourself, you could do this yourself. It is not it is not something that I've invented or that I've spent a lot of time figuring out. This is just something that that uh, that they've got right on their site. I will tell you though, and I'm going to do this on Slackware because I feel like that's the the less native environment to do this in, right? I mean, if I was doing it on RHEL or Fedora or OpenSUSE or even Debian, GNOME, I, I feel like that's kind of, that's sort of expected. This is Slackware with with not a GNOME library to be seen, that's not true, and, and running a KDE desktop. So this should be a pretty good test of of, of the system. So the first thing that I have to do is install Flatpak and Flatpak Builder. And the way that I'm going to do that is I am going to leverage 
thepowerofslackbuilds.org. So I'm going to do my little interface to, to Slack Builds is Sport. So Sport Search Flatpak, and I've got a desktop. In the desktop category, I've got Flatpak-Builder, which is Flatpak Builder Sandboxing Desktop Application Building Tool, and Flatpak. So there you go. So I'm going to do a Sport install of Flatpak. Actually, I'm going to do a cat of Flatpak to make sure that there's not a lot of dependencies. Oh, there's a huge amount of dependencies. There's XDG Desktop Portal GDK, libsec.comp, JSON glib, AppStream glib, OS Tree, and Bubble Wrap. And all of those probably have lots of dependencies as well. So I'll install all of that stuff. And I, I know it's already actually installed, so I'm not going to. But I know from experience that the 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 one that really sort of matters the most is OS tree. I mean, they all matter because it won't work without all of them. But in terms of updating Flatpak, OS tree and Flatpak are are really, really tightly bound. So if you're ever doing Flatpak on a on, on Slackware or on something that, that maybe doesn't have it super, super well integrated, just know that OS tree and Flatpak are going to kind of go hand in hand when you're doing upgrades. So... Let's pretend like I've done all that stuff, and uh, I would have had Flatpak 1.1.0 installed. And then I would want to install Flatpak Builder. I'm going to do a cat of that to make sure that there's not a bunch of dependencies. The only dependency for Flatpak Builder is Flatpak. There's a, but there are a bunch of notes in here on the different things that I have to do in order to get Flatpak, or Flatpak Builder rather, working on my system. So, for instance, there's a Flatpak remote add dash dash from GNOME SDK GNOME. So we'll we'll, we'll deal with that in a moment. Um, but and I know that that's there. So there are things that I might need to do in order to get Flatpak Builder building the right thing, and that's fine. But before I go through the the install notes, because I mean it's already installed, so it's really just kind of conf extra configuration. So rather than reading through that and doing those steps yet, I'm going to do I'm going to go to docs.flatpak.org, which is obviously the documentation for Flatpak, the latest edition. So there's a section in there. There's a section on getting started and that sort of thing. The the one that I care about right now is building your first Flatpak. And it assumes that you've got Flatpak and Flatpak builder installed. We have that. It's telling us that in this tutorial it's going to use an SDK to understand the concept of an SDK, I mean, you may already understand the concept of an SDK. It's kind of a famous term, software development kit. But in order to understand how that applies to Flatpak, you have to be aware of of the runtimes or the platforms of Flatpak. So there are, I guess, three different ones right now. There's the GNOME runtime, the KDE runtime, and the free desktop runtime. So if you've built an application let's say, based on a bunch of KDE libraries. And you would probably know that you've done that because you'll have imported them into your code or you'll have downloaded the cute, uh, the cute libraries and you've, you would have used those. If you've done that, then if you've done that, then you kind of know that you're going to probably need the KDE runtime. Now, as a normal user, you don't need to worry about that. That's not something that you would even ever think about. You would just go to the GIMP org website you would download for instance uh, you would download gimp uh, the, the flat pack reference and you would install it with with whatever tool your your uh, distribution provides you for flat pack uh, interaction if it provides you nothing then you'll just do it from a terminal and if you don't pay attention you'll never know that you've just downloaded the flat pack gnome runtime 
whilst installing the GIMP application. Same goes for, for instance, Kadian Live. You would never know that you just downloaded the KDE runtime along with the Kadian Live Flatpak. Now, if you've already installed Kadian Live and then you install Krita, for instance, you still have only downloaded the KDE runtime one time. That's runtime one time. Uh, and, and that's the advantage, I guess, of Flatpak, or that's an advantage of Flatpak over AppImage, because with AppImage, AppImage can't really see outside of itself, to a fault, apparently, right now, until I get it figured out. But anyway, uh, Flatpak, you've got these base layers that you can install when you need them, and a lot of times you'll only need them once, even though you're installing, let's say, three or four applications, because those three or four applications are basing themselves on these sort of standard bases. But if you're building a flat pack, then you do kind of need to know about what what platform your your application requires, and you can find that out more or less. You can investigate what's available in the docs.flatpack.org, uh, the the website there where they the the reference documentation. They tell you what available runtimes they have, and more or less what each runtime can contains. That's certainly all we need to know about that for now. So it's telling us pretty explicitly that we need to install the free desktop.org runtime and SDK. And it gives us a command, which is flatpak install flathub, that's the repository we're installing from, flatpak, or rather, free desktop.org.freedesktop.platform slash slash, that is two slashes, 1808, and then org.freedesktop.sdk slash slash, again, two dashes, or slashes, 18.08. So that's Two different things that we're installing from Flathub. We're installing the free desktop platform and the free desktop SDK. So the equivalent of that in, I don't know, an app image or, or just designing an RPM or a deb file would be to go out and gather the libraries that you know that you need, you need for your application to run. Whether you're packaging them in an app, an app image or whether you're just referencing them in a spec file, Installing the platform and the SDK are kind of, that's the 80% of that job done. So then you have to create your application. Uh, ostensibly, you would already have that created, but for, for this demonstration, they have us, the readers of the tutorial, create, I'm, I'm going to go into my code directory here, I'm going to make a directory and I'll call it hello-flatpack. Then I'll go into that, oops, go into that. And uh, they've got a, a really, really simple one here called hello.sh, I think. If not, I'll change it. But uh, it's kind of predictable. It's hash bang slash bin slash sh, which is a symlink to whatever your shell is set to. And then the echo is hello world from a sandbox. And that is exactly what I will do because that's pretty distinctive. Yep, yeah, and they call it hello.sh. So you've got your application called hello.sh, and I'm going to, I think maybe I will go a little bit further, and I'm going to create a directory called, make a directory called usr, and then another directory called bin inside of that. I'm going to move hello.sh into user bin, because I feel like in real life I would probably structure my code that way anyway. Okay, so now we need to add a manifest. Manifest file is uh, a YAML, or a JSON file actually, a JSON file with information about the application. 
It's got a lot of stuff in it, and it needs to be called something like org.flatpack.hello, with a capital H is what they do, JSON. It's a unique string that's going to serve as the app ID for, for whatever you're working on. Now, since I am not with Flatpak, and I would probably in real life, I imagine I would I would be branding this myself. So I'm gonna I'm gonna instead do info.slackermedia because I do own the slackermedia.info domain. Uh, .hello with a capital H, just because if that's the precedence they want to they want to establish, then I'll go with that. .json, and then into that file, I'm going to paste the contents they provide. It's JSON, so it's just basically a dictionary list, if you think of it in Python terms. And the first element is app ID, and that is, of course, exactly what I just said, info.slackermedia.hello, without the JSON at the end, and the hello is capitalized. The runtime that it requires is org.freedesktop.platform. We know that. We've already we've installed it. The runtime version is 1808 the org.freedesktop.sdk, uh, or rather the SDK that it requires is org.freedesktop.sdk. And it's worth noting here that that last, that final thing that, that's in all of these strings is init capped. So SDK, capital SDK, platform, capital P, lowercase, platform, hello, capital H, lowercase, everything else. So that's just kind of uh, the convention I think that they're trying to set forth. So the command that we want to execute is hello.sh. We know that to be true. And then there's this thing called modules. And this is a sub... It opens up kind of a, a sub-json list, a, a sub-dictionary inside of the, the... Or a sub-list inside of the list, or a dictionary inside of the list. Uh, and then it's... Uh, so this module, this first module, so square bracket, curly bracket, name is hello. Build system is simple. That I don't know a whole lot about yet build commands and this is kind of the the um this is the ad hoc install portion of the script so build commands and this i like over at least the current my current state of app image this i prefer a lot to app image uh because it's it's very clear to me as to what's going on here so we've got install dash capital d and if we look at the install man page which um I've done before, and I never remember what all the different forms of the dash Ds uh, stand for. It's uh, The dash D is create all leading components of the destination, except the final one, which is, of course, the thing that you are copying. Uh, so we're doing an install dash D, and we're going to take user bin hello.sh, which is what I'm providing, right? That's the destination. And then we're going to put it in slash app slash bin slash hello.sh. That's kind of important, because when we... When we build our app image, that's where my files are going to get distributed to. And app bin, uh, well, app slash app slash bin, of course, is going to be sandboxed inside of this this flat pack called org dot or info dot hello. Okay, so we'll close that, and then we say sources. The sources are um, the type is a file, and the path is hello dot sh, except that it's in user slash bin. So I'll save that. So I did a few little variations there on their example. And we'll see how that goes. And that is technically an application. It's a simple application. Uh, I should probably... Should I chmod that hello.sh as executable? It didn't... I don't remember it saying to do that. So I think we'll just leave it as is and see what happens. Okay, 
so the next the next thing to do, I mean, like I say, it's a simple application, but I think you get the point and the, the sort of the feel of it, which is we put stuff inside of a directory, and then we reference the stuff that we've put inside of the, of the directory in a JSON file using a syntax that we would obviously gain from reading the documentation or looking at other flat packs. But we use a syntax to within the JSON file communicate to Flatpak where all that stuff that we've just put in there should go. Now we need to build the Flatpak. And this is kind of a two-step process. It's kind of uh, kind of interesting. There's the build process, and then there's the, the actual what you would have to do with the thing that you just built in order to distribute it to other people. So the first, the first step that we take would be Flatpak-Builder. That's the command, which we've installed at the beginning of this whole scenario, if you'll recall. And then we need to give it a directory. So I I feel like the thing that would make most sense to me from from previous experiences is to just make a build directory in the current in my current directory. Just call it build. And then uh so flatpak dash builder. So I'm just gonna tell it the, the directory just build. So flatpak dash builder space the word build, because that's the directory that I that I just now created. And then I'm going to point it to my JSON file, which is in the current directory. So I'll just type in I in and then tab over and then sure enough, info.slackermedia.hello.json and hit return. And it processes it. It's doing things. It's processing it. And it says install cannot stat user bin hello.sh. And that's okay. I know how to fix that. So if we open up the JSON file again, we'll see that in my install command, I had issued it the full path to the hello.sh. Remember, install-d hello.sh slash app bin hello.sh. Well, I don't really need to do that because I've defined the location of hello.sh for the entire JSON file in my sources element in the JSON file. So sources, type, file, path, user bin hello.sh. So I'm going to just remove the user bin slash sh from my install command, install dash capital D. I'm just going to put hello.sh and then space slash app slash bin slash hello.sh. And we'll try that again. So I need to remove the build directory because it's got stuff in it, had the beginnings of a flat pack in it. Then I'll make it again. So this is obviously perfect for a make file kind of um, process, but I'm doing it manually right now. And then we're doing flat pack space build, because that's what I just created. Info.slackermedia, hello, JSON. And this time it runs through it and correctly finds everything. Running install hello.sh, committing build to cache, cleaning up, committing stage, clean up to cache, finishing app. Okay, so cool. So that, that, that looks like it worked. So now we need to test the build. To test a, a build that you've just created, it's again another it's a flat pack builder command, but this time it's a it's got the dash dash run argument. So flat pack dash builder dash dash run build, that's the build uh directory, as you recall. And then the path to the JSON file, so info.slackermedia hello JSON. Kinda wonder why they think that's necessary. I guess maybe I don't know. It's interesting. And then the name of the executable that we want to to, to test, which is hello.sh. So I'll hit return, and it says, hello world, from a sandbox. So it's correct. My, my application is running. Now already this is a lot farther than I'm going to be able to get lately with app image, so this is very promising to me. 
and and as you can see it's it's a pretty well structured process i feel this is kind of this is stuff that i can kind of wrap my head around uh the paths are complex but not super complex you you know where to define those in in a flat pack and that's very comforting to me that's kind of i guess i'm probably dwelling on that right now because that's the problem that i'm having with app images that i can't figure out where where the root directory or how to define that root directory is but with flat pack the the yaml the json file i think J json's technically yaml right so when i'm saying yaml i'm not wrong correct i'm pretty sure so anyway um that JSON file, the location of it, that, that's the root directory. So when you're telling the JSON file, when you're putting into the JSON file, okay, you know, the, the executable's here, the, the path to this file is there, that's all, it's all very easy to, to figure out. You know exactly where everything begins. So anyway, that's quite nice. So technically we've got a running application, but the, the thing about that is that you're not, you can't distribute it as is. You have to put your applications into a repository. Now a repository is, it sounds a lot fancier than than it than it is. A repository is just a formalized sort of a, a package for a for a flat pack and it's it's actually quite easy quite easy to make. So what we can do is we do flat pack dash builder again but this time instead of instead of dash dash run we're gonna do dash dash repo equals, we'll just call it repo. And then we'll do a force-clean, just to make sure that we're not bringing weird stuff from our cache into this uh, scenario. We'll give it the build directory, which is build, and then we'll give it the JSON file, which is info.slackermedia, blah, blah, blah. So I'll just tab, tab complete that. And that happens pretty quick, at least for me, because, like I say, it's a tiny little application. Gives you some information about, about what it's doing and what it has done, and then you've now you've got a repository. Now, if you put that repository repository somewhere on the internet, people could utilize it to to install a flat pack. This flat pack. We're not going to do that right now. We're going to instead add this little repository to our local flat pack system, which is uh, flat pack dash dash user. So that gives us we, we don't have to drop to root to do this. So we'll just do flat pack dash dash user and then remote add or remote dash add dash dash no gpg verify because we haven't verified this with a gpg quite yet and then we'll um we'll have to find our repository which is repo oh well we need to call it something first sorry so we'll call it um example that's probably a bad name for it but example dash repo and then it is uh, if you do an ls in the directory you'll see that you've got in the um, in your main directory, in, in addition to the build directory, you've got this repo directory. So that's that's the repo. That's where that's where that's located. So that added it. I mean, it didn't give me an error, so I guess it it added it. And then flat pack dash dash user again, because again, I don't want to become root to do this. Install. Uh, what did I call it? Example dash repo. And the name of the application that we're installing from this repository is info.slackermedia.hello with a capital H and no.json. We're not giving it the JSON file right now. This is, we could be anywhere on our system right now doing this, that this part here, the install, because we've added that repository to our, to our flat pack. If you are familiar, if you are familiar with Git, this all seems very natural. This feels totally normal. Adding a remote, um, a remote, uh, repository, that's easy. And if you're not 
if you're not familiar with Git, then you can go listen to my Git series on Hacker Public Radio, and I talk a lot about this sort of stuff, including how remote remote repositories don't have to be remote. They can just be a repository, another directory on your on your computer. I've done that a couple of times. Well, heck, I'm doing it right now as we speak on a server because I push stuff to the server and it copies stuff over to a directory where I want people to actually see the files. So, and and the way that I do that is I simply add the destination directory as a quote-unquote remote repository. Doesn't really mean that it has to be remote. It just it it isn't in that current directory. So that that's what we've done is we've said okay, take this repo that we've just built, and and by building it, all we've done is made you know we've had Flatpak create this infrastructure for us, and it gets added to the Flatpak system. And now we're using Flatpak to look at our repositories and it knows that there's one called example-repo because that's the name we told it to to tell we told it to name it and and we're saying from that repository look look for a, an application called info.slackermedia.hello it says installing in user info.slackermedia.hello slash x86 underscore 64 slash master example repo and then a commit number is this okay well yes it is there it goes. It was a quick install. Again, small little application. So now I'm going to just go out of the way. I'm, I'll go. I'll go back to my home directory. So I'm out of out of my build environment. I'm back in my home directory. There's nothing, no strings attached. So if I do flatpak space run space info dot slacker media, and remember this is the kind of syntax that I was kind of grumbling about the other day. Still don't love it. Flatpak run info dot slacker media dot hello. Hit return. Says hello world from a sandbox, and as you can as you can tell from my the sound of my voice, and and you know that I'm an honest person, um, I am nowhere near that hello.sh script that that was that was just invoked from Flatpak automatically because it is installed into my Flatpak subsystem, if you will. So a couple of notes on this. First of all, the first note is that actually when I went when I when I installed it just now, it actually failed the first time, but I cut that out. And I cut that out because I didn't want to co- I didn't want to cause any more confusion on the process because I'd already tricked you once with that path the incorrect path thing. So the reason that it f- failed this the first time was that the export directory in my Flatpak my local Flatpak uh, folder had been marked owned by root root, which I don't know why that happened. The only thing that I have in there is uh, some. I don't remember actually what it was, but I mean, it was just some, there was some thing that I'd installed, you know, a flat pack that I'd installed uh, when I was playing around with stuff, and I, I, maybe I installed it as root, but into my local directory or something. I'm not, not 100% sure. So I don't know what exactly happened there, and I probably, for, for, I should have cleaned the environment before doing it. But I just want to kind of let you know, hey, there was a little hiccup there. It got solved, and I believe the, the problem was, something that I'd previously done just messing around with Flatpak. I do not believe that it would have happened if that hadn't been the case, because I'm not root right now, haven't been working as root, so there's no reason for that to have been owned by root. And I do not have any reason to believe that Flatpak itself or Flatpak Builder caused it to be um, owned by root. I think that was just me being uh, inattentive whilst whilst doing tests in the in the past. Okay, so that's out of the way. The other thing is that the flatpak the flatpak run info.slackermedia.whatever thing, I believe that's what the snap daemon provides. I could be wrong, or I could be telling you an incomplete story here, but I'm pretty sure that the snap d 
uh, part of of the Snapcraft system is the thing that that brings to your system's attention that hey, you need to add this to your path. This this place is a valid place to run applications from. Whereas Flatpak does not have a daemon that you run, and therefore, and it doesn't add itself to any any known path. So you have to either do that yourself or execute it in some wonky Flatpak space run space info dot slacker media dot hello syntax that nobody would ever really want to to use. So there's probably a, a correct way around that. I just don't know what that is right now. And who knows, it may even mean that in the future, I mean, if Snap has a daemon and AppImage now has a, an admittedly optional, but it is a daemon, they've got one, maybe Flatpak is going to have to head in that direction. I don't know. I could be wrong. Maybe I'm missing some details, but that's just something to take note of. The takeaway from this experience, though, is that Flatpak is uh, very much an impressive system and something that I'm very excited about now whereas I used to be a lot less excited about it in the past. But honestly, running a RHEL desktop and seeing what tight integration Flatpak can can mean to to a desktop and what it can mean across distributions, it's a really, really, really big deal that I don't think I really want to get away from. This th- This is really, really nice. I feel like I'm living a privileged life now because I've just got all of these applications available to me no matter what distribution I throw onto a computer, whether it's a computer that I dug out of the trash and had to install something super lightweight, but I still want to run, I don't know, PDFTK on it, but don't have don't have that lying around. Well, I'll install it from Flatpak. Oops, actually I won't. Flatpak doesn't I don't think have I don't think they have a PDFTK, but Snap does. So I would install it with Snap. And I guess that's the quandary right now. We've got this great thing. We've got this flat pack thing that's got a really nice system behind it. I really, really am liking it. And then we've got this other thing, which is Snap. And the Snapcraft crew have been really, really proactive in talking about Snap and demonstrating it. They do weekly, I think, video casts showing you more about Snap. I mean, it's very, very impressive. It's very cool. It just happens to be yet another canonical project that that happens to be an alternative to something that's remarkably similar to it. And you just you have to wonder, obviously, given canonical's history, their their track record has not been necessarily stellar with their little alternatives. Uh, what was their display alternative called? Something like Mir or something? Of course, that's gone. Their alternative to GNOME, Unity, that's gone. Their alternative to System D, Upstart, I think it was called, that's gone. Their alternative to, I guess, I guess you could say it's an alternative to Dropbox, uh, Ubuntu One, I think it was called, that's gone. There are just so many things that you can look at, and 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 look back at all the wreckage. And so I'm I'm looking at Snap, and I I it's given me PDFTK on a system that should not otherwise be running PDFTK. So it's huge. It's a big deal to me. That's that's something that I appreciate. And I've seen some of the the video casts on how to build a snap and it seems pretty reasonable to me. I'm just not clear on the advantage of having an alternative to something that is itself providing a unified system. So that makes me a little bit 
well, I guess nervous, but also confused, because, I mean, really, which way should one go? I don't know. I can't speak... I can't say for sure which is the better model, because I haven't really looked that well into Snap. That is a, a thing that is on my list, so um, I'm going to be taking a deeper look at Snap. Got to build a sample one, sort of start poking around inside of the, the Snapcraft resources, and ideally, if if these projects continue going the way that they are going, with their central theme being unified, decentralized application distribution, then in theory it shouldn't matter that Flatpak and Snap coexist. I, I think that there's still a little bit of a branding issue there, because if, if that mythical application developer, not so mythical actually, I'm like one of those mythical application developers at this point, some person with this thing that that wants to look at Linux as a platform and say, "Hey, I want this thing to be available to everyone who uses Linux." What's the what's the really easy way to make that happen? It's a kind of a tall order and has been a tall order for a very long time, and that's why you go to websites and you click on the download for Linux and it says, "Well, we're not actually we don't have Linux, but if you look at your distribution, they should have it in their repository." Or maybe they do have packages, but then they have like eight different packages, one for every popular distribution. That's the kind of thing that I think intimidates developers who aren't invested in in the Linux ecosystem. They don't want to have to deal with that. They want fewer choices. They want one thing to target, to write into their build scripts, and then they're done. So if we have one thing to target, which might be Flatpak, might be Snap, might be App Image, then then that's what they can target. They can de- deliver to that one platform and know that they've just hit the entire Linux market. And I think that's that's important. It's it's not important to like Linux's survival or anything. It's just important for a better Linux experience. And that too, I think anyone using Linux is is significant. We we want that. The fact that Flatpak has this create USB option uh, is is quite appealing to me, as you know. I've I've said that. So unless Snap has something very, very similar to that, I will definitely lean towards Flatpak definitively. Um, because at this point, like right now, Flatpak's the one that builds for me. Uh, it's the one providing me with most of my app, you know, most of the the important sort of user-facing applications that you think about on your desktop. A lot of those are Flatpak right now on my on my Rel des- desktop. A couple of them on my Slacker media, my Slackware machine. So. It's kind of got a lot going for it. Uh, App Image won't even build for me right now, so I'm kind of confused about that. And then Snap, I have not looked into. That's where I stand, but Flatpak is really amazing. If you have not tried it yet, you should try it. You should build the demo app. I'll put a link to the uh, little tutorial in the show notes. You should you should do that. It's It's easy. It's satisfying. It kind of gives you an idea of how it all works. So go do that. I'm going to go get a cup of coffee. I'll talk to you next time. Cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Ogcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. 
My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at Klaatu at member.fsf.org. That's Klaatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. With an adult in a car like a chaperone, it doesn't sound very exciting.